This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. With me today is Dr. Mitchell Lee, an emergency physician practicing in North Carolina and the founder of Take Medicine Back, here to discuss the corporate practice of medicine, the legal doctrine that in theory prohibits corporations from practicing medicine. Dr. Lee, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me, David. Dr. Lee's bio is posted on the podcast website. On background, over the past 12 years, this podcast has discussed increasing corporate dominance of healthcare delivery, made evident by the fact that the healthcare market is highly concentrated and highly leveraged. For example, I interviewed Professor Katz Olson in March of 22 regarding her Hopkins published volume, Ethically Challenged PR Storms U.S. Healthcare. As an aside, today more than 75% of physicians the highest percent in any time in history are employed by corporations, explained in part by the fact that over the past decade, PE has spent roughly $1 trillion to acquire physician practices. Corporate medicine is problematic because allowing the corporate practice of medicine can compromise a physician's independence and or create a conflict between a physician's ethical duty to their patients and corporate or shareholder interests in maximizing profits. While states and state medical societies have historically prohibited corporate medicine, enforcement has been both limited and every state has created today exceptions, including for professional corporations to hire or employ physicians and for employment of physicians by certain other entities. In part because the Biden administration beginning in July 21 promoting competition executive order has given priority to antitrust enforcement and more generally implementing policies to promote corporate market competition via, moreover, the DOJ, FTC, CFPB, and SCC, there is renewed interest in revising corporate medicine statutes. Uh, The Biden effort has been termed, as an aside, the new Brandeis movement after the Supreme Court justice. This past fall, the AMA, that that historically, as one would argue or could argue, aided and abetted corporate medicine, considered a resolution seeking a federal ban on corporate medicine informed in part by a 70-page report published last October by Take Back Medicine, or Take Medicine Back, excuse me. AMA delegates voted 3-2 to two to refer the resolution to the AMA Board of Trustees for further study. With me again to discuss the uh, corporate medicine reform is Take Medicine Back's founder, Dr. Mitchell Lee. So with that, so somewhat lengthy, uh, apologies, introduction. I, I noted this 70-page report um, called to action. It's a working paper. I'll actually post a link to it with this audio. Um, this is a lengthy report. So I'm going to ask you a couple questions. But first, um, I gave a very brief definition of corporate medicine or the corporate practice of medicine, CPO. How would you define it or how would you define it further? Well, that was a it was an excellent background. Um, considering where most I think people are in terms of their awareness of the corporate practice of medicine doctrine uh, or or background at all. Um, to simplify it, the concept really is whether or not 
a lay corporation, that means non-physician corporations, should be influencing the practice of medicine for profit. And the word profit is a little bit, it's a, it escapes us sometimes, I think, the exact definition, because uh, it becomes a little meaningless when there's a non-profit that's really tax um, exempt. Tax exempt. Right. Uh, that may be behaving like we would think a for-profit corporation might. And you might have an individual for-profit in terms of tax structure uh, physician who is the most, you know, ethical practice hanging in shingle out and, um, you know, giving free care or extremely affordable care to patients. And they're still listed as a for-profit corporation. So this, I think, is to the heart of it, which is essentially whether or not the corporation is composed of and owned by physicians who are practicing medicine. I do think that's important to say practicing medicine, not somebody who just has an MD or a DO after their name, who then owns a corporation and profits off of the labor of the other physicians. So this might look like a a small independent practice. And today that's really um, like direct primary care uh, where the relationship is just between the patient and the physician, Uh, no third party at all, no insurance company and no, hospital or private equity owner of the practice. Um, And it also might look like maybe a a group practice of um, kind of like a co-op of physicians who live and are invested in the community and have similar or equal ownership of the group. And that means not just fiscal ownership, but they can make decisions like political equity in terms of if it's an emergency department, what the staffing is going to look like, how many doctors do we need on at any given shift so that it's safe. And that, of course, there's there's always the drive to earn an income and I guess we can call it profit. But the idea is that the physicians have a, you know, an ethical and professional responsibility to put the patient's needs first and uh, lay corporations uh, do not have this. So this doctrine was created in the early uh, 1900s, maybe late 1800s, when the profession of medicine was just coming into its own. The Flexner Report was published in 1910 and standardized a lot of the requirements for medical training that we know today, you know, a basis in science and a four-year curriculum, um, followed by now a residency program, so that there was kind of an elimination of, of sometimes um, what we consider might be considered charlatanism, like uh, snake oil salesmen and, and peddling uh, cure-alls. So it was at that point in history, which you know we refer to maybe as the first Gilded Age, um, because I would assert that we're in a second Gilded Age now of extremes of wealth inequity and corporate consolidation in the form of the, the trusts um, and, and monopolies, uh, where those corporations started employing physicians and this might have been like a railroad worker or a um, a mining company. And uh, the physician was then under the control of the corporation, which wanted its workers to get back to work. And if they had an injury or the black lung or something, the doctor might not have been able to um, exercise independent judgment to act in the patient's benefit. So this was noted as, as an ethical problem. And uh, the corporate practice of medicine doctrine essentially said that physicians should not enter into contracts with uh, with lay corporations, meaning not other physicians, um, and that we shouldn't be splitting our fees and giving kick to these corporations so patients can actually trust us. And, uh, you know, of course, this was long before 
uh, CMS or, or Medicare um, and insurance as it existed was was really a non-factor at the time. Um, so the, the CPOM doctrine hasn't really been reinterpreted in the world of um, HMOs and uh, enormous insurance companies uh, and the Affordable Care Act and value-based care. It hasn't really been reinterpreted there, but we are seeing that now about 74% of physicians are employees of some kind of lay corporation. And that does include hospitals um, because hospitals are still lay corporations, even though they're integral into patient care. Um, but increasingly it's uh, consolidated and maybe vertically integrated corporations um, and, and those that maybe don't even have any role in the healthcare system, such as private equity. Okay. Thank you. Uh, you do, you do use that second gilded age phrase in this document. Um, for me, the, the one sentence from this 70 page report that is really sums up this, this issue is at page 13 where, uh, it, it boils down to is the profession of medicine a commodity or not? If it's a commodity, then it's, it should be, uh, regulated under, uh, antitrust uh, legislation. Uh, if it's not a commodity, that has different consequences. Um, so what's interesting here is that, and you talk about the, there's been a paradox here. You talk about FTC regulations in the seventies, because after your, your discussion about CPOMs, uh, you know, 1910s, 1920s, and the 1970s, the FTC, the view was that, um, medicine should be, and you talk about it, it was, it was termed a learned profession from the, you know, it was considered a learned profession, lawyers, accountants, uh, physicians, that it should be subject to, uh, antitrust, uh, regulations. Of course, now you, as you intimated, the, the economy has evolved. It's much more, uh, sophisticated. There, there are many moneyed interests here. I mentioned private equity, and that sort of changes the whole dynamic for the practice of medicine. And you say in this document, while prohibitions on the corporate practice of medicine have been uh, deemed anti-competitive, the unintended consequences of regulating the medical profession and other trades have been dire. So um, let's talk. You do discuss certain specialties in this document. So let's talk about your specialty emergency medicine, because emergency medicine has been substantially, um, let's, let's call it victim of, uh, modern corporate practices. In fact, I think at some point, you note there are two private equity firms that, uh, employ approximately 20% of emergency physicians, but put it in context of your own profession. Sure. <clears throat> and, uh, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to, to kind of geek out on the antitrust stuff. Um, I think it's really, it is quite integral um, to to our position, and, and overall, we feel that um, antitrust law needs to be have a renaissance in terms of enforcement. And, and to put this in that historical context, in the early 1900s, in that Gilded Age uh, era, uh, I would say the the American public had like two different reactions to to this concentrated wealth. One was the antitrust movement. And of course, we uh, to, to the non-scholars of antitrust, it, it sounds a little anachronistic, I guess, because what is what are the trusts? We're, we're not busting the trusts anymore, but we have big monopolies, so it's pro-competition, right? And um, the other big movement was the labor movement and unionization, 
And you're seeing a renaissance a revival of that today. And the one that people are, are less aware of is the profession of medicine's approach with the corporate practice of medicine doctrine. So uh, I see a repeat of history as, as happens, um, you know, throughout history. And uh, the, the the antitrust paradox, um, you know, that's a that's a nod to both Bork right. in, and to Lena Khan's Amazon's antitrust paradox. So. <clears throat> Excuse me. For those who are familiar, um, the <clears throat> the antitrust uh, enforcement was pretty radically changed in the uh, 1970s and 80s um, with the consumer welfare standard. And uh, I won't go too deep into all of that, but essentially lowered the or increased the threshold of um, review by the Federal Trade Commission. And, and change the ideology that consolidation is perfectly fine. So as long as like costs go down to people um, and, and Amazon's a good example of that consolidation taken over a lot and costs have gone down to sort of uh, gone down to the consumer. It's easier to get um, uh, it's easier to get your goods at this point. At the same time, um, there's a concern that perhaps that hurt labor mm-hmm. and perhaps that hurt, that's hurting innovation overall and putting small business out of business. And, and it's actually hurting innovation, even though we think that on the surface, it's done some good things. So digging into the, the practice, uh, profession of medicine's um, history, there were actions by the federal trade commission in the 1970s against the American medical association. Um, <clears throat> of course, the AMA has had a lot of reputations over the, over the past um, and, and known for fighting against forms of universal health care and such. And I, I think, and I wasn't there, that there was a lot of sentiment against the medical community, that costs were rising, and it was the doctor's fault, and, and they had a guild um, and were protecting their own with a, with a monopoly themselves. And so the corporate practice of medicine doctrine was, at, by some, viewed as a way to increase um, <clears throat> physicians' own uh, salaries and um, there was also a prohibition on advertising, which we don't talk about as much. Right. Yes. For lawyers as well. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, yeah. And, and the lawyers, interestingly, the, the, there were actions, to my understanding, by the FTC against the lawyers as well. So neither group was able to enforce ethical standards among their members to not advertise. And it seems weird now. Of course, doctors can advertise. And the, the, the sense was that, um, you know, they could compete based on prices if they advertise with transparent prices. Um, of course, if you go back to why we weren't advertising, it was because a lot of uh, non-physicians and um, charlatans were making outrageous claims and very predatory advertising um, of, of things that would prey on people's um, ears and, and, and make claims that couldn't be couldn't be backed up by science. So I, my feeling was that there was a, a sense that we did go through. We had scientific standards, we had professional standards, and we weren't going to drop to that sort of marketing level. So the lawyers were able to advertise, but but the FTC did not, interestingly, take action against them regarding uh, the corporate practice of law prohibitions. So the corporate practice of law more or less exists in um, and is enforced to this day where when you um, hire a lawyer, there is an attorney-client privilege and you know that there is not a third party interest in that. And if there is, because the law firm represents another uh, party that's opposed to you, it's actually considered legal, potentially legal malpractice if there's a conflict there. So um, although we all have our opinions about lawyers, um, the attorney client relationship is held 
in higher regard than the patient-physician relationship is today, because essentially you can't serve two masters. So enter emergency medicine, that's my specialty, and um, emergency medicine is, is an interesting one because it was a specialty formed by a societal need, not so much just like a, an organ system or a type of surgery. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, the concept in the United States that people were um, starting to use the emergency departments because we didn't have a great primary care system um, and, you know, perhaps didn't have insurance. And so folks were just kind of ending up in the ER. And, and this was an interesting population because um, we didn't, they were undifferentiated and they're higher risk by nature of presenting to the ER of selection bias. So a patient might be, you know, showing up and we don't know them. We don't have their medical history and we have to pick up on a needle in a haystack as far as the, the subtle emergencies that, you know, you don't want to be sent home and then die within the next four hours because um, we, you know, we wrote something off as anxiety, which patients often complain about. They, they dismissed my symptoms, et cetera. So trying to get that, um, <clears throat> find that needle in the haystack and uh, know how to treat and resuscitate and recognize an emergency early on and then have the overall skill set to treat patients who might be presenting for things that we might not consider an emergency. Um, we're going to have a discussion about what uh, the definition of an emergency is um, uh, maybe another time, although it does come into play financially because of EMTALA right. and, uh, and the prudent layperson standard, which is basically uh, a person who's not a physician who might consider that they have an emergency. Um, you know, as long as that's sort of a prudent observation and, and, and such, then it would be considered um, an emergency condition. So our specialty formed much later, and um, it the first emergency medicine residency was opened in 1907. So this is interesting because the profession of medicine had existed for, you know, a half century at least, um, Prior to that, and so we were we kind of were born at the same time that these actions were happening against the profession of medicine by the Federal Trade Commission. And I don't have proof of this, but I think that that influenced how the early leaders in our profession started behaving and um, and how they saw that physicians might are being told that we're we're treated as a commodity. The, the central question about the um, about a learned profession versus how the FTC and economists wanted to treat us was your your training doesn't matter. Your dedication to patients, the fact that you, you know, gave up your, your 20s and early 30s um, for dedicated training, the fact that it was um, standardized and had, uh, you know, was is, um, has an, an awful lot of like science behind it. Uh, that doesn't matter. You're just a commodity. And right. so eat against each other for your, your labor and your cost will go down. And, and I think, and so that was an, an, a huge inflection point. And I think that's where I think a lot of people would say that the profession of medicine died. And those early in our specialty started realizing they could treat other physicians as commodities. And thus was born the contract management group. The idea that a physician could own the contracts at multiple hospitals instead of a small group of physicians who were in sort of a co-op type model or a small democratic group. Um, one physician could own the contracts and then essentially fee split the other physicians, just employ them and then take the difference between what their labor produced 
um, in terms of reimbursement or whatever the hospital contract, you know, paid that physician. Um, and those grew. And, and that was, you know, the, that was the seeding of the cancer, I think. Um, and this model of commoditizing other professionals um, became an ingrained model in the profession of emergency medicine. And leaders in our original specialty society, the American College of Emergency Physicians, um, embraced this in various different ways. Um, and then at some point, one of these groups that was physician-owned technicality, again, I talk about meaningful ownership. Meaningful ownership to me is the bedside physicians who are practicing medicine own it and own it in a meaningful way and that they can affect the environment. But what we had was usually a non-practicing physician who was the owner on paper and then figured out that they could sell these contracts and sell these groups to lay entities. And one of the first um, examples of this was a group selling to Laid Law, which is a Canadian bus and transportation company. So suddenly physicians who were supposed to, you know, be have basically own their own practices were owned by a, a bus company that just as an asset to create more wealth for mm-hmm. a whole company. Um, and that snowballed. And uh, there was a book maybe also anachronistically named the rape of emergency medicine um, in 1992. And that sort of exposed these early transgressions and uh, spawned the American Academy of Emergency Medicine, which is an alternative organization to the American College of Emergency Physicians. That organization today, 30 years later, is suing Envision in California for the illegal corporate practice of medicine. And they are not seeking any financial damages. They're seeking to set precedent for these laws that have not been enforced on the books for for decades at least. Um, but ultimately, emergency medicine uh, pioneered this model that was very attractive to private equity firms, which love to invest in or exploit or um, extract from uh, business models that are already well established. So we sort of designed it. And, um, and now that model has metastasized. Right. Yes, it certainly has. So as you know, the American Academy of Emergency Medicine is suing and envision. And as you wrote in the report, seeking a judgment only with no fiscal damages. Um, but I think um, emergency medicine, obviously, as you, for various reasons, I think it serves to demonstrate as a good example, although, of course, you discuss other uh, uh, professions uh, in the report uh, beyond uh, emergency medicine. Um, but we'll, we'll leave it at that. Let's, let's go to let's, – I mentioned this AMA. Not, not that I think this resolution is certainly not the be-all or end-all. So it was a resolution um, that called for uh, federal regulation or federal legislation. Uh, it was it was voted by the delegates. I said three to two, three fifteen to two eleven. Uh, it was sort of a kick the can response, as we would as they would say on the Hill, referring the resolution to the Board of Trustees for further study. You know, I don't, who knows what that? I don't know what that means. Although I'm sure if you're a trustee, you'd have a better idea. So. The call is to involve uh, at the federal level or get the the White House and the Congress involved. There was 2020 legislation, um, H.R. 6910, uh, introduced in 2020. I looked. I don't think it was reintroduced this Congress, but by way of saying uh, to uh, address this at the federal level, which is why I noted 
that the Biden administration, under this executive order early in the administration titled Promoting Competition, sort of all these – this aligns, these two issues align. Um, what's this current state of play as it relates to the AMA resolution and action on the Congress or at the federal level? Oh, yeah. Um, this is uh, kind of exciting to us. So uh, I credit Dr. Vicki Norton on our board um, and also the American Academy of Emergency Medicine, who really pushed that resolution um, forward at the American Medical Association. And to be honest, that was such a, um, I don't say pipe dream, but so far out of where the American Medical Association's formal policy uh, lies that we didn't think it had even, even a remote uh, right. chance. And the reality was there was overwhelmingly um, supportive testimony on that resolution. And I think people have just had it buried for so long and we've reached a boiling point um, and frustration with the AMA, to be frank, because of course it represents maybe 10 or 11% of practicing physicians at this point in history. Um, and and uh, most physicians, I think, feel that the AMA has failed them in, in many ways. Um, and we don't really have a voice uh, speaking for us. So if, if you look, I'll, I'll read this, just this little um, sentence from the American Medical Association's report of the Council on Medical Services on the Corporate Practice of Medicine from 2013. And it says that the corporate practice of medicine concept dates to the late 19th or the 19th century and was integral to elevating the medical profession, ensuring the autonomy of physicians and providing an ethical basis for the practice of medicine. And Today, the AMA says that physicians have the right to enter into whatever contracts that they would like to. And part right. of that was because of the Federal Trade Commission um, actions. But it appears that physician leadership, especially in an older generation that's leaving the profession, has really embraced this. So, um, you know, it really sits in my mind that this doctrine that was integral to the ethical basis of medicine probably should be um, revived. So we saw that in, in the AMA uh, meeting, there were certainly attempts to kill the legislation or the resolution and um, the I say council on legislation um, came out opposed to it saying that this is a state-based issue. Um, and historically the corporate practice of medicine Doctrine has been baked into state medical practice acts, um, and the and who can practice medicine has been regulated by the states. So that's all true, but we felt like that didn't really um, make any sense. And we spoke with uh, three attorneys, um, Hayden Rookley and Aaron Fusey Brown, who are co-authors on the New England Journal of Medicine article, um, a doctrine in name only, strengthening prohibitions on the corporate practice of medicine. And Mark Hall, who is um, cited among the, uh, the the most cited legal scholars, health legal scholars mm -hmm. in history. Um, and and they uh, wrote a statement basically saying that, no, there there is a um, precedent for federal uh, legislation and, and intervention in this. There's plenty of precedent for that. Look at EMTALA, not saying that it always is the right move, but there's plenty of legal precedent for it. So instead of it getting completely just killed at the at the AMA, um, that letter essentially made its rounds and showed that the Council on Legislation either had an agenda or didn't know what it was talking about. And um, 
the there was a motion to adopt the re resolution as is immediately versus uh, kick the can down the road. And I believe it was 40 to 60. So 40% had voted to vote on it um, right now. And ultimately it got referred to the board. But 40% to me is a massive minority in if in an organization that has more recently been uh, completely essentially dedicated to corporate interests um, or the status quo. And uh, and that would have been to vote on it. And only a few more votes would have been needed to actually uh, adopt it. So um, to me, I, I took some very big signals from that, that there is an, an undercurrent of, um, of unstoppable change. Um, you asked about the federal level mm -hmm. and uh, HR 6910. So that was the ER Hero and Patient Safety Act. And uh, this is not directly a corporate practice of medicine piece of legislation. Um, uh, I'm not sure when this podcast is coming out, but we expect this to be reintroduced, um, maybe with a slightly different name because it will include other specialties, not just emergency medicine, um, the week of the 26th with bipartisan and bicameral support. Um, there was Democratic support missing uh, on the Senate side previously, and Senator Warren has uh, their team has uh, announced that they will be um, co-sponsoring it with Senator Marshall and Ruiz reintroducing it in the um, in the House, along with uh, some Republican uh, Congress people. So we're excited about this. This is not corporate practice of medicine alone, but it is, I would call it an, a, a downstream effect of the corporate practice of medicine, which is that when corporations have increasing control over physicians, uh, they can have more leverage to have them practice how they want to practice. And this example here is um, Dr. Ming Lin, who was advocating for basic patient safety and, and staff safety measures during the early days of the, the COVID-19 pandemic. He is an emergency physician, had been practicing, I believe, 17 years at Peace Health, um, a hospital system in Washington State, and as everybody knows, the Washington was the first one of the first places right. that um, COVID hit. And so he wasn't just saying we don't have enough PPE. He, he knew that people didn't have enough masks. It was just implementing basic things that would protect the staffs, like uh, like taking temperatures outside and cohorting patients. And uh, he didn't get any response from the hospital staff. And he posted on Facebook, posted online the issues. And then he was removed from the schedule because the hospital subcontracted to a private equity owned contract management group, Team Health. Um, <clears throat> and it was realized that he had no due process rights. Um, according to the Healthcare Quality Improvement Act 1986, uh, physicians are supposed to have due process uh, rights, essentially right to a fair trial and hearing and appeal um, if, if they're going to be deprived of their, uh, their ability to work at the hospital or their medical staff privileges. And these have eroded so much in, in the past uh, several decades. Um, and physicians employed like Ming Lin under a third party, often misclassified as independent contractors, don't even have the illusion of due process. They can be taken off the schedule at any time for bringing up anything such as patient safety concerns. So physicians are so disempowered while these corporations are more consolidated and have regional labor monopsonies, essentially, where uh, you don't have any places to work otherwise unless you uproot your family. Um, so the control that these corporations have over uh, physicians is, is enormous. 
And although this does not disrupt, this bill does not disrupt the corporate practice of medicine, uh, you know, in terms of employment for by a hospital, it's, it's a little bit of a modern reinterpretation here where physicians just need protection um, in order to actually advocate for their patients and, and the other staff members. Well, thank you for that explanation. Uh, 6910, and I'm reading the summary, um, provides spe- specified due process protections before taking certain actions in respect to their employment. So that's exactly what you said. Uh, physicians, uh, uh, professional activity or staff pleasure of these physicians without a fair hearing and appellate review process through appropriate medical staff is would be required. So, and, and that got a lot of attention, that Washington case. So I'm glad you uh, discussed it. Um, I, I, I do think it's interesting and promising relative to um, the Congress. There is bipartisan support. Um, not surprisingly, the California Representative Korea, who's, I believe his wife is an OBGYN, but not surprisingly, Senator Warren from Massachusetts, but also uh, Josh Hawley, Missouri, and Vance from Ohio uh, have been supportive in, in, on this uh, subject or relative to this issue. Um, let me, there's, I'll just note for the listener, uh, there is uh, evidently the National Academy for State Health Policy is drafting model legislation. There are other related efforts. I do want to make mention, so I, I, I discussed the Biden administration, uh, and I'll ask you, what, what awareness do you have relative to the FTC's involvement here? Uh, Lina Khan, who's the chair of the FTC, has, has received a fair amount of ink relative to her um, view, I would say, uh, summarized people who think excessive corporate power lies at the root of most social ills, she said, are exactly correct, more or less. Um, relative to regulations, are, are are you informed about what what we might see from, since I mentioned SEC, DOJ, uh, and FTC? Um, yeah. So if you, uh, I'm not sure if you have access to it. I can send this afterwards to you, but we have a video that was released by Senator Warren, um, for our, our conference this past, uh, this past week. And she does a great job in that short video, a few minutes, um, outlining a lot of the federal initiatives right now. And I will say that, um, you know, we're very much aligned with Lena Khan, um, in her generally the sort of neo-Brandesian movement um, while also trying to bring it to the attention of the FTC maybe did a lot of unintentional damage to us in the past um, by essentially making, putting physicians into a, a very, um, a, 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 putting physicians to a place where uh, we can't compete against these huge corporate monopolies. Um, and we aren't necessarily asking for a return to complete uh, learned profession antitrust exemptions, but um, but some policy things might need to change. And if you look at uh, a clip, I can send you this as well from FTC Commissioner Alvaro Bedoya at the Capital Forums um, Conference on Healthcare Competition. Uh, he he said that these state laws uh, he feels are immensely important and are not being followed, at least in spirit. So we're really seeing, you know, folks within the FTC start to understand it. Um, I was among, I think, two other physicians uh, invited to speak at the Federal Trade Commission's committee on, uh, committee, or it's not committee, on listening session on firsthand effects of consolidation in the healthcare system. 
Um, and, you know, it was a listening forum and uh, Lena Khan was there and clearly taking notes. So we've seen a lot of movement. We're really actually we're quite happy about how uh, the federal government, uh, these components of it really have been listening. Um, we've been engaged with the DOJ, the FTC. The uh, White House has issued what I think should have been more of a headline um, that they're launching a cross-governmental investigation into corporate greed in healthcare. And that was buried in a press release. And I think that it should have been the, the primary line. Um, we're seeing a move by Senator Warren and uh, others in terms of the potential unintended consequences of the Affordable Care Act and how uh, corporations like United Health are, um, are gaming the medical loss ratio uh, by vertically integrating. We are seeing um, Senate committee investigations, I think budget committee into private equity ownership of hospitals. There's a pending investigation that I can't share too much about um, that I hope will surface in the next couple of weeks. Um, Katie Porter uh, has embraced the issue and uh, also released a video for our um, our summit and, and hopefully can launch some additional congressional investigations. Um, and so some things I can't really share, but I will say we've had a real robust response and a good uh, bipartisan response because we are not talking about divisive issues uh, other than money. So um, we are out there with a nonpartisan issue that essentially says, let's restore the patient-physician relationship and let's take external profiteering out of, out of the system. And the more light the issue gets, the, the better it is because, um, it, you know, light, I think, is the best, the best disinfectant here. Right. That's the famous uh, line. Yes. So thank you. Um, Katie Porter, of course, the attorney house member from California. Um, well-known in this area. I, I will note specifically, uh, and I think you discussed this in your report, sort of the bottom line here would be uh, for the federal government through rulemaking, uh, here would be CMS as it re- relates to Medicare and Medicaid programming, to prohibit CPOM as a prerequisite for federal funding. So I've argued in the past, reform to conditions of participation. Um, presumably, if you could include... I haven't crossed uh, CPOM to uh, specifics of uh, under uh, COPs, but that would be a bottom line uh, reform that would be would be a, a, certainly on paper in theory uh, effective. Um, I we have one. I would like to ask you this question. When I'm in reading this, you know, sooner or later, and whether it's the AMA on this subject specifically as well. Um, you could connect the dots pretty quickly to socialized medicine when you're talking about CPOM reform. Um, because if we had single payer, however you want to term it, uh, we would obviate, largely obviate this corporate practice of medicine problem. Uh, do you, does your work leader bleed into this other related issue? And of course, the AMA has been debating socialized medicine. Of course, we know what their position has been historically on this or single payer. But do you touch upon that at all? Because this is that's where that, that's a I wouldn't call it an attendant benefit, but they're certainly interrelated. Um, well, that's a good question. So, so with this really goes back to the payment system and reinterpreting the corporate practice of medicine in a modern era where healthcare is potentially expensive and not nearly as expensive as we are led to believe it is by our currently our current you know uh, corrupt layers and layers of 
smoke and mirrors. Right. Um, again, direct primary care, it's, it, it's incredibly uh, affordable um, in the grand scheme of things, even if we can separate that from the issue of uh, huge wealth inequities. So I say it's affordable, and we can also say that people have trouble affording their basic groceries and basic needs. Those two, two things can be true, um, but it does go back to the payment system. Uh, so there's a lot of hiccups that we could go down uh, with a single payer discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, I would frame this at looking at Medicare right now, and there's a you know Medicare um, or a improved Medicare for all bill is my understanding. And not, to be fair, I have not read everything about it. But if we look at our current political system and we look at CMS right now, then I would be concerned that we have had severe regulatory capture. And that CMS is a primary funder of uh, the corporate practice of medicine, and they have Absolutely. the power. Right. They have, they have the power to to stop that, but they're not. And so let's just say that in in theory, um, I would agree with a single payer system as an ideal, which I'm not saying necessarily I do. Um, Take medicine back does not have a formal position on this, although we are engaging in the conversation. And I think that's going to be something very productive is engaging in the conversation with thought leaders in this um, and those who are very against it, to be honest. Um, But those who are against it potentially for good reasons or at least uh, authentic reasons. And right now, I think that if we had Medicare for all in the trajectory that we are heading, we'd have Medicare disadvantage, United Healthcare denies care for all while sucking up 50% of the GDP, just to kind of paint a picture. So if we have single payer, first of all, if there is a government payer, I think um, right now like with Medicare, that they could use uh, basically a test to say, does this, um, whoever is getting these payments uh, meet CPOM doctrine standards? So um, at that point, you know, whether or not, corporations that employ physicians could be reimbursed, um, you know, or, or at all. Uh, I think we should put that in context of why those big corporations say they, they exist. HMOs, why do HMOs say they exist? Why do um, big hospital systems say they exist? Usually it's because they are integrated and they can improve patient outcomes and they can do it more efficiently. They'll always use the word efficiency right. and innovation. All right. Well, that, the, the rationale there then is you're going to do this more efficiently and therefore the costs should be lower to the patient and the taxpayer. So if you're able to do that, then you can clearly do that with less. So maybe it's a 15% Medicare cut for the corporations. Meanwhile, it's actually the physicians who are getting Medicare cuts, but entering that thought process into the public's mind of uh, if the rationale for having a corporation involved is, uh, is to make it more efficient, then they should be saving money. And that money should be going to the taxpayers and the patients. We know it's not. We know it's going to make multi-billionaires bigger multi-billionaires and concentrate wealth. So I think that's where we got to head with the discussion um, and then talk about what does single payer look like? And does that re- preserve things like uh, independent practice with cash paying where a patient can have the option? Um, we'll go back to Brandeis, uh, Lewis Brandeis on this again, and concentrated power in the hands of the few. We can have concentrated power in the hands of the few, or we can have democracy and we can't have both. Right, exactly. So is single payer concentrating an enormous amount of power in the hands of the few? Uh, and that would be my concern. 
um, uh, as well. Well, thank you. The The subject we didn't get in at all, I didn't name it, uh, but we don't have time for it, of course. And a, a good example is, of course, Medicare Advantage plans, which is mm-hmm. the private commercial aspect of the Medicare program, which now actually has more than 50% of Medicare beneficiaries enrolled in those Advantage plans. So with that, Mitchell, we're at our time. But I appreciate this uh, overview. Very important subject. Interestingly, um, it's finally, I think, um, as you noted, from the November AMA meeting, uh, more or less come to a, let's hope a boil. Um, and we'll see where we can get this year before November 5th on it. So I wish you every luck in forwarding this issue. And thank you again for your time. I think we're there. Thank you so much for having me. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.